Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin, that's me, the second and fourth Friday of each month on The Sewer Show. Between 5.30 and 6.30pm. Here on 3CR Community Radio. Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, uh, Anne, on this uh, last Friday before the election happens. I'm so preoccupied by the election coming up. When is it? When's the election? Next week? Did they call it for May 21? May 21. Just around the corner. What's the date today? 13th. Let's forget the date. We're in, in kind of like the, the last week of the election mode, and, and it's um it's frustrating time, uh, especially when you're an MMT and hearing these conversations uh if you're going to talk about the economy politicians Mm -hmm. you need to understand how the economy actually works (laughs) and stop stop all the nonsense exactly you know a lot of the uh commentary around the election i guess i'd never paid a whole lot of attention but now i'm hearing it quite a lot which is how the liberals pull out their old game from their old playbook to try and discredit the Labor Party as being bad economic managers. It, it drives me nuts. What drives me really nuts about that is I can understand why the coalition would say that the um, Labor is bad economic managers because it's good propaganda. Mm. None of the facts support this propaganda, incidentally. And if we go through <laughs> the facts, it's quite interesting. One very interesting fact was it was a few years ago where Labor and Liberal had been in power for exactly the same amount of time since Whitlam started in 1972. So if you took 1972 up until a few years ago, mm-hmm. they'd both been in power for 22 years and six months or seven months or something, exactly the same amount of time. So there was a comparison done as to uh, how they performed uh, economically. And as it turns out, Labor had a better economic track record in terms of GDP mm. than Liberal. They were like about $40 billion ahead. Mm. So there's one step. But if you have a look at um, things like uh, the highest taxing governments, well, that was the Howard government was the highest taxing government. Really? The Howard government? <laughs> oh, I totally swallowed that one. <laughs> well, uh, so here's, here's an interesting thing. Mm. If you're going to run a surplus, which they effectively did, how do you run a surplus? You run a surplus by collecting more tax than you spend into the economy. Of course, yes. So the, the Howard government ran successful surpluses and they did that by... Taxing. Taxing, not just reducing spending. Okay. And also remember that it was Howard that introduced the great big tax on everything called the GST, the very same tax that they were criticising Labor governments for. So, <laughs> so, But never let the facts stand in the way of a good propaganda. Propaganda, no. They just keep on saying, oh, you know, you can't trust Labor with the economy. You can't trust Labor, who also had two internationally award-winning treasurers, one being Keating and the next one being Swan. So... <laughs> But, but, you know, they just they just stand there and say, oh, you can't trust Labor with the economy. Mm-hmm. Repeat it often enough and it becomes a thing. Well, it was interesting. Do you recall how the election kicked off with this old schoolyard bullying tactic of the gotcha game when Anthony Albanese, oh, yeah. who's, of course, the leader of the Labor Party, he was asked what the employment rate was and what the cash rate is. And um, he got the unemployment rate wrong. Muffed it. 
He muffed it, yeah. He said it was 5.4% when it's around 4%. And, of course, that's the official unemployment rate, and it's not even the real unemployment rate, which is probably twice that anyway. Yeah. Uh, the next day, I remember Adam Bant was on the on the press club at the ABC, and one of the journalists asked him another stat: the WPI. I can't remember what it was. Little factoid. Yep. Little factoid. And uh, Adam Bant said, "Hey, mate, Google it," <laughs> which, <laughs> which, which I thought was an excellent answer. And then he then he tore into him, going. Yeah. Listen, stop trying to with little gotcha moments and blah, blah, blah. What we're talking about here is what's good for the country and what's bad for the country. And you trying to trip me up on some figure which, mm-hmm. which I'm supposed to arbitrarily pull out of my back pocket mm-hmm. is, is not a sensible question. Incidentally, it's 2.3% and he knew what it was. <laughs> 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 that was impressive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. well, Adam Band called them out on that tactic. Yeah. This is Bill Mitchell. You're listening to my favourite Melbourne radio station, 3CR, with Anne and Kev, Unemployed Workers Fightback Program. Great program. Great guests. <laughs> Kevin, what do you think is really a sign of someone who's a good economic manager? Do you think that it's important that they can uh, just tell you these little facts and figures off the top of their head? I think uh, you'd have to say that somebody who is a good economic manager is somebody who has a fundamental understanding of how the economy works, can understand what they can and can't afford to pay for, but more importantly, what impact their spending is going to have on inflation, not on the deficit. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what a, a good economic manager would have to be. Mm. You've heard about what I think a good economic manager is, Anne. What do you think a good economic manager would be? I have thought about this, and I think a good economic manager is someone who knows how to manage resources, who talks about the economy in terms of the resources. Ah. So a good economic manager to me is someone who's going to think about now, should we be pumping more emissions into the atmosphere? <laughs> Ooh, well, if it's profitable, that sounds like an excellent idea, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> they might look at the costs and benefits on that one. Or I think a good economic manager might be saying, you know, should we be defunding our our education and research institutions? Should we be defunding disability care? Should we be defunding aged care? Or does it actually need us to put more resources into it? And if we do need the resources, what are they and where are we going to get them? Yeah, and, how, and how do we distribute them? Now, it, uh, Philip Lawn, he, he has the, um, the well-being indicator. Is, is that what it is? Yes, he has a, a measurement called the Genuine Progress Indicator. The GPI. The GPI. The Gen- Genuine Progress Indicator. And that takes into account basically the well-being of the population that the economy is running for. Mm-hmm. Like this, this well-being indicator that the New Zealand government introduced a, a short time ago. And, and surely... Surely that's got to be a better measure of how your economy is running rather than whether Gina Reinhart is, in the, <laughs> is the richest person in Australia again. That, like, that, <laughs> well, that's a really good point, actually. A good economic manager would be calling for the Australian Bureau of Statistics to start running a GPI and start collecting the data because they're not even collecting the data for a GPI. I think Phil Lawns used whatever he can find that's out there, mm. but you would actually do a much better job of doing all those measurements. Yeah. Well, he's done a great job, but he's doing it virtually by himself. Imagine if he had a whole government department Mm. that was concentrated on the well-being of their population as being an indicator of how well the economy is running. Mm. Mm. That just doesn't sound that complicated then. No. Well, it's kind of like what we heard with the uh, Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Act, where 
as a result of not funding it, they're not even collecting the data on what's happening with the species. Like they don't even know. (laughs) So a good economic manager would put money into resources, into looking at how our environment's doing. Yeah, you know, and so rather than worrying about uh, whether you knew what the unemployment rate uh, is by percentage points, you'd have to say, well, unemployment is getting better or worse or koalas are becoming extinct or it's harder to maintain health if you're over the age of 67. I mean, these are the big picture general direction things as opposed to having to know every statistic off the back of your hand. And I think lastly, I would say a good economic manager we'll be talking about introducing a job guarantee. So, in fact, there would be no more unemployment rate to quibble about because all your involuntary unemployment would disappear with the job guarantee. Yeah, but that's way too sensible. Way too sensible for any of the candidates standing at the next election that that I've um, heard of anyway, Anne. (laughs) Oh, there are a few um, micro-parties out there. I know that TNL, the New Liberals, are talking about a job guarantee. Oh, yeah. The Reason Party's talking about a job guarantee. And there was talk about that down in Tassie as well. There are some interesting uh, developments occurring. We've now got the whole Teal candidates, the the Climate 200. Yes. Simon Holmes are court uh, candidates. So that's something which uh, it's been worrying me for years is just because you're a conservative voter, does that mean that you don't care about the environment, that you don't care about <laughs> about an ICAC and that sort of stuff? And, and I know a lot of them do, but they just sort of go, oh, well, uh, it's not part of our agenda, so we just won't worry about it. Well, now they have to worry about it because there's a whole bunch of independents that are threatening, uh, even in my seat down here in Goldstein. Tim Wilson is under pressure from Zoe Daniels. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we've got uh, Josh Frydenberg under a lot of pressure in, in his seat in uh, Kuyong, which is Menzies' old seat, which was then Peacock's seat. So it's a blue-ribbon Liberal seat, which uh, is looking like it's under threat. Mm-hmm. So some of these some of these kind of uh, concepts are filtering through, even on the conservative side of politics. Yeah, we're hearing a lot more about these issues because there's so many independents running this time. Yeah. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Now, what have we got in store for the show this week, Anne? Now, Kevin, you might not believe this, but (laughs) it was not my intention to speak only to a Greens candidate, Suzette Rotorita, in the run-up to the election. But I ran out of time to chase up interviews with micro parties that I suspect might use an MMT or modern monetary theory understanding of the economy. So micro parties like the Fusion Party or the Sustainable Australia Party. But we didn't get to talk to them about what their policies are. The New Liberals, we spoke to them a while ago, Victor Klein. Um, there, there are a few of them around. And of course, we'd always be very happy to speak to the Labor Party, the Liberal Party or uh, any of the majors um, about uh, some progressive economic policies and agendas. Yeah. We've spoken to Jed Carney uh, from the ALP before. We do have a range, don't we? <laughs> so on our prior shows, you can go back and hear our interviews with candidates from the Reason Party and the New Liberals, or TNL, the not the New Liberals. <laughs> yeah, um, but we're not telling people how to vote, of course. Absolutely not. If you'd like to support neoliberalism and, and keep uh, the conservative way of things going, then by all means you can support people like Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton with his black shirt army of <laughs> entirely your choice. Um, uh, and uh, we would hate to tell you what to do. So It yes. is a democracy. <laughs> Well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Suzette Rotorita to the show. Welcome to the show, Suzette. 
Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Suzette is trained as an ecologist and she is here in her role today as the Greens Federal Candidate for the Division of Jelly Brand. Yeah, the boundaries changed for this federal election. So we have um, things like Williamstown, Altona, Newport and all the way up to Point Cook and part of Truganino as well. I also saw that you're a conservation ranger at the Hobson's Bay City Council. So I've got you pictured in a big hat and big boots. <laughs> That's pretty accurate. So tell me, what, <laughs> what, what does a ranger do? Oh, I, I love my job. So a ranger is basically someone who educates our community on our amazing ecosystems and plants and animals in this particular geographical region. You might have heard of like the Friends of. So Mm -hmm. we have, for instance, the Friends of Newport Lakes and the Friends of Williamstown Wetlands. And we have a lot of Friends of groups across the municipality that we work with. Often the history of those groups is that they actually helped create the conservation reserve because it was in some cases zoned for housing or zoned to be a tip or something like that. And they actually protected that area. So we work with them in planting and weeding and teach them about the birds and the, and the plant life. I imagine it would be quite the sacrifice to head off to Canberra and <laughs> the toxic culture that we hear about. I tell people, I, I, never, I don't want to be a politician. I certainly didn't grow up thinking, gee, I wish I'd be the Prime Minister one day. And then when I became an ecologist, I, I love being outdoors, but I just couldn't stand through one more election and watch our country go in a direction that I'm not happy with. I did see also that uh, the seat of Jellybrand, which is currently held by Labor's Tim Watts, is Labor's fourth safest seat. So what would you hope to achieve by running in that seat? Well, a few things. I would hope to achieve that the green vote increases in this region and that um, people actually start to see the Greens as a viable third party opportunity also, one of our, our primary goals is to have our amazing Victorian Senator, Senator Lydia Thorpe, be re-elected. And yeah, look, it's possible that if, if we run a good campaign and if people see the value of the Greens, that we can at least give uh, Tim Watts and the Labor Party a run for their money and possibly be in the running for perhaps winning the seat sometime in the future. Yeah, it seems that... The, the whole of politics has shifted way to the right, particularly over the last 20, 30 years. Do you think you play a role if you, if you stand at little to no chance of winning the seat of Jellybrand because of the Labor's stronghold? Do you think that you have a role to play in dragging politics back from the far right where it's been heading for quite some time? Oh, that is a great question and a real passion of mine. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and like you say, I think politics might be shifting to the right, but I don't know, from what I can see of the community and from most polls, it doesn't look like our community is shifting to the right with it. When I talk to people, people care about their jobs. They care about the environment. They care about their family. They care about health. They care about all the things that the Greens are really going to take care of if we are uh, able to reach the balance of power in this election. And it's really interesting that you say that too, Kevin, because I now know who all the candidates are that I'm running against. On what you could say is the left of the spectrum, we have us, the ALP and the Victorian Socialists. And then we have five other candidates and they're all on the right of the spectrum. So it was a little bit shocking for us. What do you see as the reasons for that happening in Melbourne's West? Look, I don't know, um, but I suspect... It's possible that that those parties have put their hands up in this particular uh, area because they're trying to um, attract 
the people who are disillusioned with the major parties. Um, and I don't think that's just happening here in the west of Melbourne. And they're looking for independence or for other alternatives. So I suspect a lot of these people have, um, because I, I didn't know about them until um, the AEC closed nominations. Mm. In fact, I didn't even know who the Liberal candidate was until a couple of days before the AEC closed nomination. So it's like they've almost sort of just come up at the last minute to attract that maybe independent vote or those people who are really disaffected with Liberal and Labor. Do you think maybe this um, this shift to some of these uh, right-wing candidates is a fallout of Trumpism? I think almost absolutely. And unfortunately, all that sort of conspiracy QAnon stuff that's going on in the background, unfortunately, that's where I see UAP coming up and some of these other right-wing parties. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how much traction they actually get. It does tap into um, a, a widespread disillusionment with voters and mainstream politics. So the sentiment has some uh, some value. Uh, it's just that the people are choosing to exploit it. I don't blame people not trusting politicians because we clearly can't. <laughs> yeah, and they've all promised things and not delivered and they've all lied to us. I can understand people trying to find their own um, sources of information and not trusting what they're being told by their politicians. And then we've also got the media. As you know, our media is largely dominated by by Murdoch and people of his ilk. Um, so you also can't necessarily trust what you hear on the news. Speaking of the media, what kind of media coverage would you be expecting for yourself? <laughs> Probably pretty minimal, not a lot really. But um, there's been a few sort of local community groups who have recorded an interview for podcast purposes and things like that. Um, and we've got a local paper called The Star Weekly, which covers most of Jelly Brand and community radios like yourselves. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Let's turn to economics, which is, of course, Kevin and my favourite topic. <laughs> <laughs> and not my area of expertise, might I say. Maybe your second favourite topic. <laughs> Actually, what I'm hoping today is just an insight into how the Australian Greens are approaching macroeconomics, which, of course, is the economics of the nation. And one thing I noticed in your candidate statement was uh, that you say, by taxing billionaires and big corporations, we can create thousands of jobs in renewables, get dental and mental health into Medicare, and ensure everyone has access to affordable housing. And I just love those aims. But implicit in this statement is the idea that taxes will pay for all that. And of course, on this show, we follow a school of macroeconomic thought known as modern monetary theory, where we do not see federal taxes as supplying the government with revenue. So I was just wondering if you had any comments on that and how your own thinking might be evolving around that issue. Yeah, well, it's it's a good question. And um, I guess I can't necessarily speak to um, what would be an advantage over you know, moving away from a taxable income system. I think what's happening at the moment is we're speaking in terms of tax and taxable income systems because to speak of anything else is so radical for people that they wouldn't even understand what the Greens are talking about. I think the Greens super profits tax and, and what we're 
proposing is actually a really sensible plan for where we're at right now in Australia and in our current model of macroeconomics. This plan is fully uh, costed and it was independently reviewed by the Parliamentary Budget Office. You've probably heard Adam Bant and others say when you think about the fact that nurses and teachers are paying more tax than our massive corporations and our, our billionaires here in Australia, there's something wrong with that. And so our plan is aiming to target some of the, the super profits that are coming into those billionaires. And these people, they're making all these profits off us. And a lot of those profits are actually going overseas anyway, particularly in our gas companies. All those millions in profits are going to their shareholders overseas. So there's not a lot coming back to Australia. And one in three of our big corporations and billionaires are literally paying no tax right now because of our tax system allows all this offsetting and, and what have you. So um, I actually definitely think that alternative economic models are really needed. And I don't know that at this place in, in Australia and with what people know about economics, that this is necessarily the best time to um, introduce an entirely different model of of economics. Kevin and I are working very hard to change that. And I appreciate it. We certainly see good reasons for taxing the the 1%, which part of it is their influence on political power. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think you raise a really interesting uh, subject here, Suzette. Uh, It seems that the economic narrative has been totally hijacked by the likes of Tony Abbott, who came into the uh, election in 2013 with debt and deficit as the overriding major constraint on government spending, which is part of a neoliberal agenda to minimise government involvement in the economy, to have the economy driven by the free market, by the private sector and the free market. This is an election year. Elections are almost always won or lost on the whole issue of the economy, which is the government's preferred territory. And why wouldn't it be? Because Australia has survived the global financial crisis in better shape than almost any other developed com- country. Well, yes, and it was interesting that uh, uh, back in uh, February last year, no less a person than Paul Keating was talking about the United States potentially defaulting on its debt. Um, the only reason why this government has been able to spend uh, is because of the fiscal inheritance that it had from Peter Costello and John Howard. All right, let's just be clear here, though, that uh, you believe that Australia can or can't repay or is close to any danger of not being able to repay our national debt? uh, Australia is in a very sound fiscal position by comparison to other countries. Nevertheless, the way this government is mortgaging the future to fund a spending spree is utterly reprehensible. What Mr Rudd chose to do was to spend his way out of the crisis and we're much more indebted than we needed to be. Tony Abbott, thank you very much for joining us on Breakfast. Thanks, Fran. Then Leader of the Opposition, Tony Abbott, speaking with host Fran Kelly on ABC's RN Breakfast. Back in February 2010. We on this show regard that analysis as fundamentally flawed. Do you think that the conversation might improve if we could remove this false misconception that we need to run balanced budgets and that deficits are, what would you say, a negative on the uh, on the economy? Absolutely. I would hope so anyway. And yeah, 
the work that you're doing, the work that progressive parties are doing, the work that independent organisations like the Australia Institute are doing, I hope all those conversations are starting to make a difference so that um, people can see that our inherent neoliberal system is flawed. In its current state, it will always go towards having the rich people become richer and the middle income and, and lower income people either become poorer or just kind of struggle around where they are. Look, I guess, I guess that's a lot of the work of what myself and the Greens are doing um, in even raising the idea that there's a viable third party. If we can get more of a voice, then we can also provide a voice for MMT and, and the kinds of um, just alternative progressive economic models. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au I happen to live in the seat that Adam Band holds. Wonderful. Uh, so, of course, he is the leader of the Australian Greens. And I've received a bit of snail mail <laughs> from Adam the other day. Fantastic. <laughs> this is his uh, leaflet that he sent to me. And in this leaflet, he says that Adam and the Greens will fight for a government-led jobs and income guarantee, ensuring a decent job for everyone who wants one. So. That sounds to me like the Greens are approaching what Kevin and I think of as a job guarantee, um, but it might not be quite the same thing. So I was wondering, what is your understanding of this proposal? Mm. Essentially, this proposal has come from the problem that so many people are living in poverty in this country. Suzette Rotorita, the Greens federal candidate for the division of Jellybrand. Unfortunately, that neoliberal view, as we were discussing before, is that, well, if someone's poor, then that's their fault. They haven't worked hard enough. They haven't gotten the right job, et cetera, et cetera. But we really look from the point of view that poverty is a policy choice. And successive governments, at least since John Howard, possibly even before that, have chosen policies that lend themselves towards big corporations making profit at the expense of workers and the average person being able to even earn a, a decent income. So um, as a result, people are finding that it's really hard to find secure, well-paid jobs. I was speaking to uh, a father who has a 30-year-old daughter in Seaholm, which is one of the suburbs in my electorate, and he was saying he'll be voting based on jobs, that his daughter can get a secure job because she's just struggled ever since she's graduated from university to find a permanent, secure job. She's been a casual worker and, and at the time I was talking to him was unemployed. So the Greens are planning to introduce a Liverpool income guarantee, 
which is different from a jobs guarantee. We have looked at jobs guarantee before. I know in South Australia, the Greens there were asking to look into a jobs guarantee. But what we're taking to the federal election is um, a livable income guarantee. And we want to raise the rate to $88 a day. I hope the Prime Minister's listening and and hears me say $88 a day and not $88 a week. (laughs) (laughs) To the poverty level uh, as opposed to where it currently is. Yeah. A lot of organisations are asking that they raise it to 77, I believe it is. We're actually raising it to 88 and that covers job seeker payment, parenting payment, the age pension, Ab study, Oz study, etc. Over the poverty line. Yeah. What the federal government is able to do with its currency issuing capacities overnight, you can raise the rates on all these payments. Yep. So by an income guarantee, what you're effectively talking about are raising the rates of existing payments. Yep. So it's not quite what I hear people talking about a basic income guarantee or a UBI or a universal basic income. It's not this idea of just handing out dollars to everyone. No, it's, it's different. Well, I did like um, the wording in Adam's statement, government-led, because, of course, on this show we understand that it is only the federal government as the issuer of the currency that can really drive an economy towards full employment so I was wondering how the jobs part of this looks for with the Greens proposal and also whether the idea of full employment does the rounds in the party rooms there. Given the level that I, I'm at, I probably can't tell you exactly what's doing the rounds in the party room. But um, <laughs> we know from history that full employment really works. We know in about 1975 that Australians were essentially fully employed. Now, obviously, back in 1975, that looked different. That probably didn't include a lot of women and certainly wouldn't have included a lot of Aboriginal people. But essentially, anyone who um, wanted a job had a job. And we know that that made a massive difference to the level of equality in Australia at that point. Mm -hmm. I've certainly heard people in the Greens saying that we're interested in anyone who wants a job being able to have a job. So um, we're interested in building a jobs economy with things like bringing back the manufacturing industry onshore. We know a lot of that has gone offshore and, you know, we used to make cars and we can potentially make cars again in terms of electric vehicles. And, you know, I know I looked recently into purchasing an electric vehicle and you kind of have to purchase it sight unseen (laughs) and you probably have to wait six to 12 months to get one. So the demand for electric vehicles is really high and Australia could be, if not making the entire car, we could at least be making parts. And then not just that, of course, we see a real opportunity in addressing climate change that we can also create hundreds and thousands of jobs potentially manufacturing, like manufacturing things like solar panels, all the jobs that go into creating a solar farm or a wind farm, and and then also the infrastructure that goes around that. We're really interested in creating better rail systems, and those will lead to increases in jobs as well. Mm. From what I understand of economics, a big spend will drive an economy much further towards full employment. Yeah. And then the the last little inch just needs the job guarantee. So it sounds like the Greens would be open to that in the future. Yeah, I I think definitely. In terms of hours worked during a week, uh, I'd like to refer back to John Maynard Keynes, who was addressing the issue of how we would fill our spare time with automation, uh, meaning that we'd be working many less hours per week. And he was talking about this 
pre-World War II. <laughs> uh, do, do the Greens have any concept of what a working week should be in terms of hours? That's a really good question, Kevin. I don't believe we've got anything that we're taking to this election, but certainly it is something that I've discussed myself with members of the Greens. We know that um, there's a certain point where you get to a particular amount of hours or, or days that you've worked a week and suddenly your productivity goes down because, you know, we're tired and et cetera, et cetera. But I believe that there's other countries trialling this right now, right? Like trialling a four-day work week. Do you know anything about No, but... Yeah, I don't know the details. I know it is happening. I know that my housemate's just reduced his, his week to, to, to three to four days a week. So. <laughs> Kevin's got a housemate who's trialling this idea. <laughs> yeah. I work part-time as well but I'm just in the lucky position where I can afford to. But, of course, a lot of Australians can't afford that and can't manage that. Mm. I think Kevin's alluding to the fact that a job guarantee could be a vehicle for introducing that as part of the minimum standards that a job guarantee would introduce into the workplace. Yeah, right. And, of course, we're talking about a livable income at less than five days a week work. Yeah, wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> <laughs> but those sorts of standards need to be um, headed by government, not by the private sector. Oh, absolutely. Again, we look at the neoliberal model and their kind of small government, and then suddenly a pandemic comes along and small government doesn't work anymore. Suddenly the government's, you know, raising the rate and controlling where we can and can't go and injecting funds into the healthcare system. And yeah, it's clear that small government. They contradicted yeah. their basic ideology just completely uh, and then took credit for being uh, excellent financial managers. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yeah, exactly. That's a running joke on this show. We love it. <laughs> Debt, default, mortgaging the future. Debt, Debt, default, mortgaging the future. Mortgaging, mortgaging, mortgaging the future, the future. How do the Greens view uh, housing affordability? What, what can they bring to the table on that? We do want every Australian to be able to have a roof over their head. I mean, that's that's a basic human right. Suzette Rotorita, the Greens federal candidate for the division of Jellybrand. We're committed to building a million homes for low-income earners across the country. We want um, publicly owned, affordable, high-quality and sustainable homes. Over about 20 years, we will clear the public housing waiting lists. Mm. And, of course, we also aim to end homelessness. So in economic terms, you're addressing demand by supply. Yeah, which will also create jobs as well. Um, the, the reason that so many Australians are working so many hours is because they're mortgages are so high and the debt levels are so high that they need to work those hours to pay it off. Absolutely. I grew up in southwest Sydney in, in Liverpool and my parents bought their house in 1973 for about $30,000 and they've just recently had it evaluated and it's something like $800,000. I mean, it's just crazy. <laughs> In 1992, I bought a house with my partner down in Aspendale for $150,000. I was on 25 to 30 grand a year, and so was she. Uh, she's still got that house. That house is now worth between 2.5 to $3 million. It's the same house, <laughs> but my income has, has doubled. I mean, the house price has gone up. Astronomically. So there's yeah a real-time example of the blowout of, of housing cost. 
Absolutely. And my, my partner grew up in public housing. So her mum died when she was nine and her dad never had a job after that. He had some physical health issues and some mental health issues. And um, regardless of his choices about not going out and getting a job like the neoliberals tell him he should have, mm. at least his two daughters who were, you know, nine and 11 at the time had a roof over their heads and a stable a stable house for their childhood, even though Julie talks about when she was younger, she had to steal clothes off clotheslines because they didn't have any money for clothes. Mm. Mm. And her dad, to his credit, so he was a big drinker and he was a big smoker. He gave up cold turkey when their mum died and never touched the stuff until the day he died. He passed away from COVID in 2020. What a story. Yeah. You know, in a full employment economy and especially one with a job guarantee, I always say on this show that if you don't have a job, your personal history will explain why you don't have a job, but it does not explain why there's no job for you to go to. Absolutely. And in a full employment economy with a strong social safety net, his job could be to get himself back on track emotionally and mentally. That could be your job. Yeah. 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 So there is a whole different way of doing this. Yeah. Heading back to the macro economy. When we were teeing up this interview, you mentioned the concept of a circular economy. Mm. Uh, And there are all these phrases that go around with the degrowth economy and the donut economy. There's all these different things and I have not got my head around, you know, all of them. (laughs) Uh, I was thinking that the circular economy might have something to do with waste management, which is one of the biggest challenges we face. Because when you think about it, the climate crisis is all about waste because we are putting carbon into the atmosphere, which is a waste product. Absolutely. (laughs) So uh, beyond waste management, I'm not sure what a circular economy is. When the Greens refer to a circular economy, at least what we're bringing to this federal election is really based around reducing waste. And I guess the central uh, idea of a circular economy in the way we're talking about it is Imagine producing something and then having that thing last for an entire lifetime, so never having to throw that thing in the tip. Um, We would be really looking to bring things like recycling and e-waste into a circular economy here on shore. So um, as it became very clear a couple of years ago when China stopped accepting our waste, our so-called recycling, but one of the reasons why they stopped accepting it is because a lot of it was just waste and it was not recyclable. So we were just basically shipping our waste offshore to China. Again, to create jobs and economic opportunities here, we could transition to a circular economy. And the Greens have determined that that could generate $175 billion in direct benefit to the economy. So for instance, we're proposing things like a nationwide compostable processing scheme, investing um, a few hundred million dollars over five years into infrastructure and programs to reboot recycling onshore, and also investing in waste avoidance and supporting the right to repair to to minimise e-waste. Well, that is definitely a step above what I've heard about these self-combusting warehouses (laughs) that are just stockpiling waste in Australia. (laughs) Oh, crikey. We just had to deal with one of those recently, just a month ago. So I live um, near Altona, which has a wonderful environmental area called Cherry Lake. And a company upstream had a fire, the old story, had a fire in their warehouse and, and very quickly put it out and washed some chemical solvent into the local Cherry Creek, which flows into Cherry Lake. Mm. 
And as a result, it killed thousands and thousands of fish and eels in Cherry Lake. We had to remove about 17 tonnes oh of fish from Cherry Lake. It made the national news, but, um, I mean, recycling's great, but we just don't do it very well in Australia. But also eventually we want to transition to an economy where we're reusing rather than recycling. And, well, my, my grandparents knew this. I mean, they were the great sustainable generation particularly during wartime when things were scarce, they had to fix their own clothing and fix their own things and repair things rather than just chuck them out and buy a new one. Yeah, I've seen lots of discussion around what the hard rubbish collection looks like. What I see multiple versions of are fans. Everyone throws out fans. <laughs> <laughs> I've been seeing a lot of lounges around here lately. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty sad. Well, um, is there anything we haven't covered that you would like to mention? Look, for me, being an ecologist and an environmental activist and someone who's interested in, in social equality, um, I've voted Greens all my life. Like it was just a, a no-brainer to me. But um, I think what's become really clear during this election campaigning is that the Greens really have a vision and a plan for a better future for Australia. And I guess... What I would say to traditionalists who, who sort of say, couldn't vote for them, imagine having them in power, what would happen? Well, for one thing, we have been in balance of power before and when we were, we got, we got um, dental into Medicare for children and this time we're aiming to get mental and dental into Medicare for everyone. We're, we're now in this climate crisis, we're seeing floods, we're seeing fires, we're seeing inequality grow astronomically here in Australia, we're seeing racism kind of rear its ugly head and... For me, it seems like a no-brainer to, to try something new. I guess it's what you were saying also about the new models of economy. Why wouldn't we try new models of society as well? Because the old one has got us to a certain point and now it's no longer working. Well, that's a great note to finish up on. I really appreciate you taking out the time, Suzette, and coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Suzette. No, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. My name's Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle, and you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3CR. Kevin has all these great strategies for voting. So, of course, we're not telling you who to vote for, but we can certainly talk about how we can take advantage of our preferential system. Yeah, the preferential thing, it can get a bit confusing and, um, and that's understandable. But um, if you have a look at the French elections, there's a whole range of candidates who put their hand up to be president. They say anybody can have a crack um, to be president and then they choose the top two out of that race and they have a runoff. Uh, so it's between Macron and Le Pen. So in the first election, you're likely to see the candidate that you really like and you vote for them. Yep. But in the second election, only two of them have made it into that election. They've got to make it into the top two. This is this is crucial. So we do the same thing, but we do it all in one hit on the ballot paper. So I'll give you, say, an example. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of these Climate 200 candidates running. Uh, in my electorate in Goldstein, we have Tim Wilson as the sitting Liberal member. Uh, and he's up against Zoe Daniel, uh, who is one of these teal candidates who's strong on climate change and an integrity commission, uh, an ICAC as such. Okay, so Tim's, he's got a really safe liberal seat there. Yeah, we're talking uh, Goldstein is um, Brighton. I'm more in the rabid part of the electorate. 
Uh, now, say normally I might be a Labor voter or, or a Greens voter or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. But it's unlikely that Labor or the Greens candidate is going to end up in the top two positions. Mm-hmm. So if I really want to depose Tim Wilson and get somebody else into that seat, rather than voting for who I might normally vote for, I'm better off voting for Zoe Daniel, number one. So this was the part I had trouble getting my head around. You're voting for not your favourite candidate as number one. Yes, and, and then I'd put, um, say, my, my favourite candidate, I'd put number two. And the reason that I'd do that is because if Zoe Daniel gets into the top two uh, people who have uh, a number one next to their name, she then picks up the preferences from everybody else down the line. And it's far more likely that if you voted for Labor or the Greens that you're going to preference Zoe Daniel above Tim Wilson. So those preferences will get her over the line. Mm. Whereas, say I voted the other way, say I voted Labor or Greens first, I then take number one votes away from Zoe Daniel and she might not make the top two. It might be that the Labor candidate uh, ends up as the second most popular candidate but the preferences from Zoe Daniel might go either way because she's like a, a more conservative candidate. So some of her preferences will go to Liberal and some of her preferences will go to Labor, which means as a third running candidate, her preferences will probably cancel out and Tim Wilson will probably get back in power again. So the smartest thing that Labor can do in Goldstein is run a very small campaign and let Zoe Daniels do the work to oust Tim Wilson. So if there's a strong Teal candidate running in any of those seats, Mm. uh, Labor is letting them do the work to oust a sitting Liberal Party because Labor is unlikely to win any of those seats. They're they're generally conservative, but let the small L candidates come in because it's a step in the right direction. Interesting. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I'm looking forward to seeing how that works. This is when you've got a candidate who's running against the sitting member and that candidate is likely to take votes from the sitting member. They're likely to be a few disaffected Liberals in this case. Yeah, this is running um, in Goldstein and in Higgins. This is the uh, Simon Holmes Court campaign that he's running where he's targeting what would normally be safe Liberal seats and he's put in a candidate who is um, centralist, maybe even small L, but have strong concerns about climate change and strong concerns about a federal ICAC, about integrity and and honesty in in government. It's kind of conservative in the old sense of the word, isn't it? You're conserving things like your environment. Correct. I mean, like Maggie Thatcher was a a conservationist, Mm. you know, so I've had a lot of trouble with these hard right conservatives being so anti the uh, environment. To me, it seems like a contradiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, In any case... Uh, politicians come and go, but the policies stay. Mm. So if you want the policy to to see the light of day, if you want to see the environment taken seriously and you want to see a federal integrity commission uh, that has teeth, if those are the policies you want to see, the best way of seeing that come to fruition is to knock out some of the conservative liberal sitting members and getting these teal Climate 200 uh, independence up instead, if you want to vote that way. Of course, if you want to vote uh, conservative and you like the hard right and you don't care about the environment and you have little uh, interest in the Federal Integrity Commission, um, then stick with your hard right candidate. 
and uh, you can keep things just the way they are. And, uh, you know. <laughs> well, that's so fascinating, this strategizing with your preferences. Now, I'm going to have to ask you, I'm in the seat of Melbourne, which is currently held by Adam Bant of the Greens. And of course, that seat is also where the 3CR studios are located. Do you have any strategy if I wanted to push Adam a little bit more to the left? You'd have to find a candidate who's more left. So uh, if Adam is likely to win, if you're quite confident. I'm not confident that he's, I don't think he's in as safe a position as in your seat. No, um, and Greens candidates generally aren't. But if you're confident that Adam was going to win the seat without your vote, you might vote for somebody who is more left than he is. Mm. But, you know, like, who knows what the numbers are going to be? How, how can you tell whether Adam Bant is safely going to retain his seat? You, you won't know that until after the election. And sometimes these little experiments can go skew if mm. I sort of suspect that the last election in 2019 where Bill Shorten lost, he only lost by a seat, but I, but I think there was so much confidence in the Labor camp that they were going to win that people started mucking around with their votes a bit and going, right, yeah, well, I'll just mix things up a bit here and, and uh, throw in my protest vote. And it could have been that some of those protest votes mm. uh, were responsible for Labor losing the uh, unlosable election in 2019. Interesting. So a lot of this strategizing really needs you to look at your seat and look at what happened at the last election and figure out how safely it is held by your preferred candidate. Yeah, and if you reckon that you can predict with uh, confidence um, who's going to win your seat, well, good luck to you after the last time round. Uh, we're talking about the House of Representatives here. It actually gets a little more confusing when you go to the Senate ticket mm -hmm. because the Senate ticket, you don't have to number every box. Mm. For instance, uh, at the last election, I could number my ballot paper so that it didn't include any of the major parties. Like it, it didn't have to include Liberal, Labor, the Greens or Nationals. There were enough uh, independence. Often you get like about 30, isn't it, options? Oh, there's heaps. There's heaps. And, and you can number above the line. You can say, I want this party, that party, and, and without numbering every box underneath. Mm -hmm. Or you can number every box underneath. If you don't include a likely winner in your... In your Senate vote. Mm -hmm. uh, in your selection, your ballot paper is, is basically null and void and will just be uh, wasted. Oh, May as well put it straight in the recycling. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you don't put somebody who is likely to pick up that seat on your ballot paper, it'll just go, right, yeah, well, there's nobody here that's in the race, and so just throw that one out. So your preferences go out the window if you can't stay in the race. Yeah, so I would suggest that regardless of who you'd like to win, especially for the micro parties and the smaller parties, you should include a major party if you had to decide between, say, Labor or liberal, you know that one of those is most likely going to pick it up. Mm. Put your preference in there as to who out of the major parties you would prefer to have if your candidate doesn't make it, because otherwise your vote's just wasted. Mm. Is there any strategy around how high up your preferences you would put one of the two major parties, the liberals or labor? Look, you often hear this thing, um, put liberal last, put, put labor last. Uh, and that's basically just saying, put Liberal above Labor or put Labor above Liberal because then your vote will have a preference as to where it will go if your candidate doesn't get up. So on a Senate paper, you can put as many of the micro parties as you like above the two major parties, but then mm -hmm. put in the major party that you would prefer to see in government if your vote doesn't count. 
put them above the other and that way your vote will count. I have heard or I have had this idea in my head and maybe I'm not quite right on this. If you put the candidate with the major party too far down, maybe everyone else's preferences will be distributed and the major party person that you don't like will get in before the major party person that you do like has a chance. There was a um, a preference whisperer um, scheme that used to exist. Um, It was legislated out during one of the the previous governments. So you could pay this guy $20,000 and he would organise your preferences (laughs) so that people like there was um, uh, Muir, the motorist enthusiast candidate who got in. Jackie Lambie got in on that uh, uh, scheme as well. Mm -hmm. The major parties, including the Greens, legislated that out so that it can't be done anymore. Mm. It still does exist in the state upper house for Victoria, but in federal politics, that scheme is now null and void. Okay, so you don't have to worry about how far down you're putting your major candidate. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm more than happy for people to double-check and correct me on that. But Yeah, because it becomes a bit of a statistical, mathematical, strategizing horse race, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, it does. And the Senate, um, the Senate paper is more confusing than the House of Reps selection. Um, but regardless, Senate or House of Reps, put your preference in and preference the major party that you would prefer to be in power if your individual selection doesn't get up. Which one of the major parties would you prefer to be running the country? Preference them above the other. Thank you, Kevin. I feel like I've been interviewing you. <laughs> yeah, well, I had to think about this the last election because I wasn't sure um, how it all worked. You know, It sounds like it shouldn't be that complicated, but can get quite complicated. So take advantage of our preferential voting system, which is this ranking system, which means that you can put the people who really represent your values, you can put them first without wasting your vote. Vote your values first. Yes. Well, we've hit the end of the road here again. (laughs) We've We've run out of time yet again, have we, uh, Anne? Yet again, we have run out of time. We've had a whole lovely hour talking about the federal election. And uh, we can speculate and talk as much as we like, but uh, guess what? We'll find out soon enough. (laughs) Anyway. Mafalda's coming up next. Uh, Vicky's standing by, ready to come in, so we need to... Uh, uh, we need to vacate. <laughs> and catch you uh, in a couple of weeks after the election, end. See you then, Kevin. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself. So if you've got all the pleasure, then what, I had no, I had no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, I, I don't mind you having it.